go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 5. And again, we apologize for the technical delays and uh, grateful that we can still open God's Word this morning together wherever we are and praying that God's Word is going to be powerful in our hearts, in our lives this morning. Last week, I mentioned that we would pick back up where we left off in this section of Scripture in Romans chapter 5, which is really, if you look at verses 1 through 11, it's one Uh, main idea, one packaged idea, and it's linked together by some incredibly important themes. I want to read from verse 1 all the way through 11, but we're going to focus this morning really at the second half of verse 5 to the end of chapter 11. But for the sake of gathering up that context, let's begin at verse 1 and let's read it together. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As we saw last week, the main idea that Paul is emphasizing here is the certainty or the assurance that the gospel provides those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is wanting to anchor our hearts in the certainty of the gospel. And the truth is that we all need this. We constantly need this. We're a fickle people. We're a fearful people. We're easily shaken and filled with all kinds of insecurity. We experience much in this world that produces much uncertainty in our hearts and in our minds. We need our hearts constantly drawn back to the truth that is certain, the truth that is unshakable, the truth of the gospel. And the call of Paul is to realize that the certainty of the gospel should elicit a kind of response in every one of our hearts. It should result, as we saw last time, mentioned here three times, in rejoicing in exultant praise, in a joy that's found only in this unshakable God and the unshakable gospel. We saw last week that we have every cause to rejoice because we have perfect peace. Secondly, we saw that we have every cause to rejoice because we have heavenly hope. But what is it that undergirds these realities? What is it that makes these realities absolutely certain for us? That makes them absolutely sure and unshakable? 
Again, we of all people, as we saw last week, are called to rejoice, but why? We have perfect peace and heavenly hope, but, but this is not enough, according to Paul, to fully ground our certainty in the gospel. There has to be more. There has to be another layer of depth here that truly grips our hearts. Paul gives us this one final reason. He gives us the foundational reason firmly establishing our gospel certainty and giving us even more reason to rejoice this morning if you're in Christ. Here's why. Because we have lavish love from God. But this is the very thing we struggle to believe in the midst of our darkest valleys. In the midst of our deepest pain, in the midst of our greatest trials, we wonder, God, do you really love me? And God, if you, if you really loved me, would you, would you really allow me to go through this and experience this kind of pain? And God comes alongside us in this text, and He whispers into our hearts and into our souls, yes, child, I love you with an everlasting, eternal love. Jerry Bridges wrote this, that we must see our circumstances through God's love instead of, as we are prone to do, seeing God's love through our circumstances. You see, when all else fails, the love of God endures. When all else is lost, the love of God remains. When all else falls, the love of God stands strong. And it is a right understanding of God's love that will put to death any ounce of uncertainty that remains and fully establish a gospel certainty in our hearts that is cause for rejoicing. And I want to pull apart God's love for us this morning, this lavish love that Paul points us to. First, I want to look at this, the means of God's love, the means of God's love. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. After expressing how we are to rejoice in trials because of what they're producing in us, the hope that does not put us to shame, here's what he says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul here spells out the primary means by which we come to be sure that God loves us. He says that God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. He has not held back this love from us. You know, I love the the imagery of marriage in this. In marriage, one of the things we, we do is we say vows to one another. And in our vows, one of the things we communicate is that we are giving ourselves to one another. I give myself to you this day, we declare. It is a display of our our love, that our love is a giving love. It doesn't hold back. Love is defined by the the giving of self completely to another. That is the truest sense of love. And what we see here is that God has not held Himself back from us. It's no wonder that marriage becomes an illustration or a, a pointer to the gospel itself with Christ, the bridegroom, and His church, His beloved bride. In an earthly sense, we often struggle to give ourselves fully to one another. In fact, we cannot give ourselves fully to one another, not in the fullest and truest sense. We struggle with this because of fear, because of sin, and because of selfishness. And we need to be reminded that God is not like us. God gives Himself fully to us. 
The evidence of this is what Paul describes here. We have been given the Holy Spirit. Every one of us, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit upon our conversion when we were justified. And the idea in the Greek here is that God's love then has been and continues to be poured out within our hearts and that this is what the Spirit of God is doing. I love the, the imagery that this invokes, the idea that His love is poured out into our hearts. Isn't that such a beautiful a picture or display for us? It's not a drip of love that's just kind of this steady, constant, but slow and minuscule amount of love that's just maybe there or maybe not. It's not a slow leak. It's not a thimble full of God's love. No, our hearts have been filled to overflowing with divine affection. The tap has been turned on to the full like a cloud bursting with a torrential downpour on a dry and thirsty ground. So too, God unleashes a deluge of His love into our dry and weary hearts. How does he do this? Again, it is the way that he does this, it's so critical. The means of this is the Holy Spirit who personally represents God's love in our hearts. Divine love, according to Scripture, is no abstract theory. It is a living person. This is one of the Holy Spirit's ongoing ministries to us as God has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to dwell within us. This is what the Spirit is constantly doing in ministering to our hearts. He's pouring out and reminding us of the love of God. This is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And He ministers this love to us in our times of need and reassures us constantly of the lavish love of God. The Holy Spirit makes us deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves us. This is what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 8, verse 16. He says the same thing essentially here. He says that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, that's the way in which God reminds us of His lavish love. The Spirit of God comes alongside us in our, in our deepest and darkest moments, in the moments of pain and trial when we're confused about God's love, and God's Spirit ministers to the depths of our soul and says, you are my child. I love you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never let you go. I will provide everything you need. I will be everything you need. This is certainly something that we experience at times in our lives. This overwhelming sense of God's fatherly love that washes over us and brings to us, as 1 Peter says, a a, a joy inexpressible. But more than that, this is something we come to know and believe as a result of the Spirit's work in our hearts. How does the Spirit do this exactly? The answer, according to Paul, is that the Spirit is helping us constantly fix our eyes upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, moving our attention and affection away from the things of the world and placing them back upon where they ought to be, upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit's primary goal is to help us look at Jesus. This is a great practical application for our hearts. 
And I love what Robert Murray McShane wrote in the 1800s. He wrote this, For every look at self, take ten looks at Jesus, and all things will appear little to you in comparison to eternal realities. This is such an important word for us. You see, we need the Spirit to constantly pull our hearts away from what we're gazing at, ourself and our circumstances, and instead to fixate upon Jesus. And the only way to do that, listen, is to run back to the Word of God. Let the Spirit minister to your heart and your mind and your soul as you gaze upon Jesus through the Word of God. Read it. Let it wash over you. Be reminded of Jesus Christ, your Savior. For every look at self or circumstances, I might add, take ten looks at Jesus. Let His love wash over you and let your heart rejoice. Secondly, let's look at the measure of God's love. The measure of God's love. In verse 6 to 8, Paul tries to help us grasp the magnitude or the measure of God's love. When we grasp the measure of God's love, we can understand the certainty of that love. When we truly understand the depths of that love, we can understand the strength of that love. And we, we kind of say it like this. We, we don't like to necessarily hear people tell us they love us. That's okay, and there's certainly a lot of value in that. But we, we say things like this. Listen, talk is cheap. Put your money where your mouth is. Don't just say it. Prove it. And Paul wants us to see that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God didn't just say, I love you. God proved he loved you. He demonstrated in the most powerful way possible at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the place, Paul says, where we see the lavish love of God on full display. So here's the question. How much does God love you? If you're in Christ today, how much does God love you? How do you quantify that in your mind? Well, according to Paul in verse 6 through 8 here, the degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift from the giver and partly by the worthiness or unworthiness of the recipient. In other words, let me frame it like this. The more that the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. You follow that? And you see, measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is over the top. It's almost incomprehensible. It's so lavish. It's so extreme. It boggles the mind. And to emphasize how lavish this love is, Paul first wants to contrast it with human love. He stoops down to our level, and he wants to remind us of human love, not at its worst, but at its best. And then he wants to show us how much greater God's love is than the greatest human love. Look at verse 7, first of all. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. That's a staggering statement, but I think we all understand exactly what Paul's talking about here. You see, on occasion, human love at its best may sacrifice themselves for a good person. Maybe not because somebody is is righteous in and of themselves or morally better than them, but for a good person, somebody who is highly esteemed or, or highly favored or valued to you in your life, there's something inherent in humanity that says, you know, I can see that. It's rare. 
That's what Paul indicates here. It's rare, but it's possible. And we've all heard stories of sacrificial love like this. We hear stories of sacrificial love where where somebody would give their life for somebody else, would take their place, and those stories are very often both touching and frightening. They're touching because there's something so beautiful about that, something in that that we, we can see that's so incredibly valuable and so unique and so precious. Who doesn't want to have people around you who would be willing to give their life for you? But it's frightening and scary, on the other hand, because we see that it's so demanding. We try to put ourselves in the shoes of the person giving their life, and we realize that there there is a costliness involved here, that you are giving everything away. You're trading your life for theirs, and that is something incredibly, incredibly frightening. It's demanding. It's costly. And humanity more often than not, resists this kind of costliness. And we do this because of sin. Humanity is defined by nature as sinful. We are radically self-centered, and all of us have de-godded God. We've placed ourselves or other created things in the place of God. We are curved in upon ourselves, bent in upon ourselves. That's really the definition of sin. We love self more than anyone else or anything else. And all human love, as beautiful as it is, can be tainted by sin. We know this, our family love is tainted by sin, our love with our friends is tainted by sin, even romantic love between a a husband and a wife is deeply tainted by sin. I love what C.S. Lewis says, he says that this kind of love between a husband and a wife, this romantic love, this kind of love professes to be infinite but is notoriously the most finite. All you have to do is look around at the divorce rate in our culture to know that that's true. We've experienced this kind of love. Maybe you've gone through the dating phases. If you can remember back that far, my wife Sarah and I started dating uh, when we were in kind of late high school, and we were all googly-eyed over each other, and we made all kinds of foolish statements to each other and declared our love. We wrote each other, you know, letters and poems, I think, maybe. And we'd say things like, I would die for you, you know, this great expression of love. I'd give my life for you. I think most of the time those things are very well-meaning, but I think we also understand very quickly that human love is fickle and weak. We withhold it when we believe it is undeserved. We dispense it based on feelings, and sadly, many abandon it when it doesn't suit their needs or interests anymore. But you see, divine love, unlike human love, is not dependent on its object. And in one sense, God's love is as great as His power. It can't be measured, and it has no end. But in another sense, we get a glimpse of the measure of God's love when we understand the worth of the gift and the costliness of the gift that is clear. And look at what it says here in verse 6 and verse 8. You you want to see the costliness of the gift? Paul makes it abundantly here in verse 6 and verse 8. He says that the costliness of the gift is Christ Jesus. He died, verse 6. Christ died. Christ died in both those verses. You see, the cost of the gift that God gives is the, the very own life of His infinite and eternal Son. 
of infinite and eternal worth, of infinite and eternal value. But you see what he does now here is he emphasizes this eternally valuable gift with the utter unworthiness of the recipients. And Paul does that by mentioning four terms in verses 6 through 8. Did you notice what he says here? For while we were still, notice this term, weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But look at this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still, look at this, look at this, sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by the wrath, from him by the wrath of God. He, he looks at us and he says to us, don't you see who you are? Four terms he piles up. You're weak, you're, you're powerless, you're ungodly, you're sinners. Verse 10, you're enemies. And so you see what he does? He says, look at the utter worthiness of Christ. Look at the eternal, infinite value of Christ over here. And then look at the total unworthiness of humanity over here. Look at how, how weak and sinful and rebellious they are. And you see what he's saying is this, the gap couldn't be further apart. And so God takes this gap and he proves his love for us by defining the cost. You see, we can't understand someone giving their life for someone who is more worthy than them. We can understand that or even someone who is decent. But this, this is unfathomable. And if you have trouble grasping what this must be like, Maybe think about the most despised person in your life, the person maybe who has wounded you or, or hurt you or offended you most, the person that you have struggled at a point in your life or maybe even now to forgive, the person who's done the most harm and damage and abuse to you. And if you don't have that, maybe just imagine for a moment that you're a parent of an only child, a child that you love desperately and dearly and someone took that child and they imprisoned that child and they tortured them and they humiliated them and then they brutally murdered them. Imagine trying to love the person who did that. Imagine loving them so much that you would give your life for them. This is what we in our sin and rebellion have done to God's only son. That's why we sang, it was my sin that held him there. This is why we recognize that none of us are worthy of God's love, and yet God looks at us in our pitiful state, and he loves us with a lavish love. You see, the gospel reminds us not about how lovable we are, but of how loving God is. And this is who God is. God is love. He loves to pour out His love without measure into our hearts. And He loves to draw our, our gaze back to the cross and to remind us and to show us the display of the measure of His love, how great His love is, the lengths He was willing to go to, that He was willing to stand in the gap and spread His arms out and pay the price for me and you to bridge the unbridgeable gap. No wonder Paul calls us to rejoice. 
Understanding the measure of God's love is truly a call to rejoice. And then thirdly, we need to understand the meaning of God's love. The meaning of God's love. In order to give us gospel certainty, Paul tells us exactly what God's love means. And what he's just described to us in verses 6 to 8 is that God's love is first compassionate. He's shown us that we are unworthy and undeserving, and yet God's love is so lavish that at the right time, when we needed it most, God looked at us in our helplessness and our weakness. God looked at us as, as enemies. God looked at us as sinners. God looked at us at, as ungodly. And he said, I will choose to set my love and affection upon you, and I will pour it out beyond measure. God's love is, is first and foremost compassionate. Secondly, we see in verses 9 and 10 that it is complete. The love could not get fuller. It could not get better. It could not be more complete And when we understand the completeness of God's love, it should make us feel totally secure in Christ. Paul in verses 9 and 10, he crafts an argument from the greater to the lesser. He says this, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, look at this language, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. He's going to use this language again. Look at this. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. The argument again is from the greater to the lesser. He wants us to focus on the greater display of God's love, the greater thing that God has done to reassure us that the lesser thing is not going to be a problem. He says this to us, he says, listen, if you're in Christ today, God has taken care of the most difficult problem you have, your sin. God has taken care of the greatest enemy you have, death. God has dealt with them in full, it's complete, it's finalized, it's finished. He says, look at the cross. You've already been justified. He's already taken the wrath that you rightly deserve. Every drop of his wrath has been poured out in full. It's complete. There's nothing left for God to pour out upon you. He's already done the greater thing. He's taken care of your sin. He's cast it as far as the east is from the west. He's done the hardest thing of all. And so what he's saying here is this, listen, that if Christ has gone through the worst of it all for you, if he hung on that cross and he suffered God's wrath in your place as your substitute, if he's done the worst, if he's done it all in full, how much more will he do the lesser thing, the easier thing? Charles Hodge, a theologian, wrote these words. He said, if the the greater benefit has been bestowed, the lesser will not be withheld. Christ died for his enemies. He will surely save his friends. Another commentator wrote these words, those who are friends with God can be secure in the confidence that his friendship never ends. Here's the point. If we know for certain that God has accomplished our past salvation, we can be even more certain that God will accomplish our future salvation, that God will bring to completion what He started. 
You see, God's wrath being removed at the cross is the assurance, it is the certainty that he is working in you now and will save you till the end. So much more, Paul says, shall we be saved by his life. Do you see? The the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the great certainty and assurance that we have. We know that he died for our sins, but we know that he was victorious and he overcame sin and death. And we are guaranteed that because his death was our death, so too his life is our life. No power, Paul says, can defeat his love. No power can strip away his love or diminish his love for his children. He has overcome the greatest danger to our souls. You know, we often find security and certainty and assurance in things that will ultimately die and stay dead. We put our security in a person. We put our security maybe in children or a spouse. We put them in possessions or money. We put them in in things or a career or whatever it is that we lean into for our security, believing that that's going to be the stabilizing force in our lives. But the reality is that when it dies, our security dies with it. Everything in this world is temporary. Nothing in this world can provide any degree of certainty But if we find our security in something that has overcome death and sin and will eternally live, we have an eternal security that grants us absolute certainty. This is why the author of Hebrews points to Jesus as our great high priest, reminding us that he lives eternally to make intercession for the saints. Let me give you one more thing that this means for us. The meaning of God's love is thirdly converting. It's radically converting. It is life-altering. And he closes in verse 11 again with these words, more than that. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. More than that. What you get, Paul says, what you get in salvation is not mere things from God. What you get from salvation is is you get God. To rejoice in His lavish love is nothing less than to rejoice in God. And we rejoice. Why? Because we have been reconciled. We have received reconciliation. We are at peace with God. The enmity is gone. The war is over. He has rescued us and redeemed us and reconciled us by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He has paid our debt in full. He has given to us his life that will outlive this temporary life and move us into eternal life. You see, we rejoice. Why? Because of this reconciliation, because of this lavish love of God. You know, we say rejoice in the the giver, not the gift. We need to be reminded of that, but we must understand that everything Paul has told us in this passage reminds us that we rejoice because the gift is the giver. 
There has been a complete shift in our position before God and in God's disposition towards us. While we were enemies and sinners, now we are friends and children of God. Our certainty is not based upon our ever-changing worldly conditions, but on the never-changing disposition of God. We have been given perfect peace with God through Jesus Christ. We've been given heavenly hope in God through Jesus Christ, all because of the lavish love of God through Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel does for us. But you see, all of this is yours only through Jesus. It comes to you no other way. There's no other way you can be at peace with God. There's no other way, listen, that you can have any kind of hope in this life or the next. There's no way that you can experience the lavish love of God apart from Jesus Christ. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ today, God invites you into this kind of gospel certainty. He invites you out of the uncertainty of the world, out of all the false hopes, of all the things that provide you a temporary joy that is not truly satisfying for your soul, and He invites you to come to the the fountain of life and to drink freely from it that He might deluge you with His love. He calls you into that love by repenting of your sin and placing your faith alone in Jesus Christ, believing that he was the one who stood in your place, who took what you deserved because you were indeed an enemy of God. You were ungodly and a sinner and weak and utterly helpless, but God saw you there and he came to rescue you. Turn to Jesus today. Place your faith in him. Know the lavish love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And then rejoice. Rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And if you're in Christ today, the the call is the same for your heart. You say, what do I do with this? You rejoice with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. You allow the love of God to overwhelm your heart, to pull you outside of yourself and outside of your, your circumstances, and to remind your heart that you have reason to praise God today. You have reason to live for the glory of God today. He has done everything for you. This world is not our home. We are here but for a moment. We have been saved and we will be saved, but in between these two life-altering events, let us be a people who find our hearts thrilled with the gospel of Jesus Christ, living in exultant praise and rejoicing. Let this love of God be the guiding thought for your weary heart this morning. Let the lavish love of God Be refreshment for your troubled heart today, for your broken heart, for your fearful heart. There is nothing more certain for us in Christ than the lavish love of God. And let us declare like Paul that for the love of Christ controls us, not our love for him, but his love for us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that your word instructs our hearts to believe. God, we see in the gospel 
the great demonstration of your love for those who are utterly unworthy and completely undeserving. God, we see the eternal chasm that lay between us and we see the arms of Jesus spanning its breath with arms open wide, filled with lavish love of the Father. And we see that you would not spare your infinitely worthy Son who willingly gave his life for us. May this love cause our hearts to rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And may we give our whole lives to you now in response to this, Lord, to honor this love and to proclaim it to the ends of the earth that in your name all the nations would be blessed and Christ would be exceedingly glorified. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.